How will the Russian opposition's battle against Vladimir Putin look without Alexei Navalny? And what does the death of Navalny tell us about how far the Kremlin is willing to go to suppress dissent? And what does this all say about where Russia's headed? Well, I got just the guests to unpack the puzzle of Russia after Navalny. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic downtown Washington, D.C. is my old friend, Maria Snegovaya, a senior fellow in the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic International studies. Maria is also a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. Maria is also the co-author of a newly published and must-read report from the Council on Foreign Relations titled Leadership Change in Russia, a Contingency Planning Memorandum. Maria also co-authored the recently published and must-read report for CSIS titled The Ideology of Putinism, Is It Sustainable? Welcome back to The Vertical, Maria. Thanks for having me, Brian. Thanks for coming. And joining, also joining us in Washington, D.C., is Liana Fix, a fellow for Europe at the Council on Foreign Relations. Liana is also the author of A New German Power, Germany's Role in European-Russia Policy. And for our purposes today, she is the co-author of that same newly published and must-read report from the CFR titled Leadership Change in Russia, a Contingency Planning Memorandum. Welcome to The Vertical, Liana. Thanks so much, and thank you for the invitation. Thanks for accepting the invitation. So, so Maria and Leanna, and Navalny was. I want to start with Navalny and move into your report in the second half. Navalny was buried today in Moscow. Uh, something the Kremlin clearly did not want to happen. They clearly did their best to try to avoid the scene we saw in Moscow today. And I think this speaks to the outsized role this man has played in the Russian opposition. Um, with all due respect to our late great friend Boris Nemtsov, there really has never been a figure. Uh, who's been able to rally the Russian public, especially young people like Navalny. And there has never been a figure that the Putin regime appeared to fear like they appeared to fear Navalny. And now he's gone. Today's funeral made that abundantly clear, kind of put a, a very sad exclamation point on the whole affair. So let's start out broad. I mean, where does the opposition go from here? What does the Russian opposition even look like without Navalny? Maria, let's start with you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Brian, and certainly my condolences uh, to Navalny, his colleagues, allies, uh, and his uh, family. It's impressive, certainly, how many people decided to show in Russia today, thousands and thousands of people, uh, to the funeral uh, to you know commemorate uh, Navalny. And if there is anything at all remotely good about all of this, it's certainly the um, the fact that Navalny and his behavior, his last three years in jail, were extremely admirable, and he certainly is perceived as a martyr by like no matter who you are even if you are say neutral about putin it's clear that uh, this man was tortured and he resisted very courageously uh, and behaved himself extremely in a very admirable fashion so um he will be, stay a symbol of this uh, resistance and um not um not overcome resistance uh he did not give up he did not betray uh, his followers right he st stood up uh, strong until the end and that is something as you said uh brian beyond just being the leader of the position able, able to rally uh, the russian public some of it at least but also being the symbol of 
resistance, resilience, somebody who stays on on on. Uh, unbeaten, who would not surrender, that is something that will remain um, certainly in memories for for generations and certainly serve this sort of ideal for many people, something that Russia has lacked uh, pretty much since uh, early 2000s after Lekhachev's passing, many have been saying that a Russian liberal movement kind of lacked this exemplary ideal. So in that sense, uh, certainly that's at least some upside. Everything else is a downside, honestly. What we've seen is the end, I think, as of now, of the liberal opposition movement in Russia. There's certainly a lot of courageous people who remain. We've seen them on this, some of them uh, in Russia's streets today. But uh, fundamentally, the dream of the beautiful Russia of the future, I'm afraid, um, is gone at this point. There really not a lot the Russian opposition is able to do right now. Most of them outside of the country. The outreach to... Um, their constituencies is shrinking despite the fact that there is a growing anti-war sentiment in Russia. That was evident at the funeral today. Funeral also, yeah, by the slow... They were chanting chanting. no war, yeah. So it's there and we see in the polls. But fundamentally, there is a sense of disarray, a loss of hope, and even when you talk to look at Navalny's team, right, what they're saying is that we'll certainly find the murderers, but they don't really say we'll have a new program for you, right, and way to take over Putin. I think that that ship has sailed at this point. Yeah, and I want to kind of dive into – there's several aspects of this I want to dive into. I guess we'll start with the opposition itself, and then we'll, I want to – as we go on, Maria, I, want, I know you and I, you and I have talked a lot, and you've done a lot of research about the young generation, and um, and Navalny was certainly a, an icon to the young generation. Um, Liana, what about that, what Maria was saying? I mean she said that, that, that this is like not the death of the Russian opposition, but it's certainly, certainly on life support at the moment. I mean, Yulia Navalny has said she wants to pick up the mantle. She certainly strikes me as a, a very, very you know, capable uh, and determined woman. I don't see much program from the FBK yet, from the, from, from, uh, for, the, for, the for the foundation for the, uh, the for, for fighting corruption. You have the Russian opposition abroad. People like our friend Vladimir Milov, who's in Vilnius, and Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Um, you have Russian other Russian opposition leaders like Ilya Yashin, Vladimir Kadamorza in prison. What is where does this go now? Because Navalny was such a lodestone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one fascinating aspect that we now have with Julia, um, a figure which is not too different from um, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya in in Belarus. So you have these two countries mm-hmm. who are led by women opposition figures. Of course, there's still and 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 the, the braveness of both of them is, is is really inspiring. Especially Julia's braveness to speak at the Munich Security Conference mm-hmm. and immediately after receiving the news to accept that sort of her political mission to carry on the political mission of Alexei and of herself is more important at this moment than her personal grief and that she has to use this opportunity to meet with high-level leaders of the world. Biden has met her, um, EU representatives have met her. So to some extent, she is molding into a similar figure as Vitana Tsikhanovskaya. Tsikhanovskaya obviously is uh, considered the the legitimate um, leader as having won one election. So obviously there are differences. But both of them face the same problem, that they are outside of the country and that establishing structures to influence anything inside the country is incredibly difficult. So while there can be sort of the rallying cry 
in exile, it does make a difference if if you are in the country or not. And obviously, she can't be in the country, but that will make it just so much more difficult uh, to achieve what Navalny has achieved, these kind of structural successes with smart voting at a time when Russia was much freer than, than it is right now. So it's uh, it's there are strong women opposition figures in exile right now, both for Belarus and Russia. But the impact that that eventually will have inside Russia is, is questionable. The only thing that is sort of giving me hope, I mean, Putin tried to eliminate hope with killing Navalny, but the only thing that is giving me hope was really the funeral and how many people turned out. Because what would have been really a dishonor to Alexei Navalny's legacy is if he would only have seen a couple of hundred uh, hundreds of people, because then what he always preached, do not be afraid would have would have not worked out. Then people would have been too afraid to even come to his yeah. funeral. That didn't happen. And there are some people who are even chanting, we are not afraid, right? Right, right? So so this his legacy um and and his principles and philosophy does carry on uh, beyond his death. I mean I I wanna believe that, but I guess I'm too old and have seen this movie too many times before. I mean, I remember we all remember Buddy Stamsov's death in twenty fifteen and the outpouring of grief at that funeral and that was this gonna be a catalytic moment for the for, for the opposition. Is Navalny different? This is the big question right now. And also uh, if I may uh, to hear sorry for being this bearer of bad news, but despite the fact that people did show Remember how much struggle the Navalny team had with Ivan reserving yep. a place of, uh, you know, to, to say goodbye uh, to Navalny. And nobody really stood up to offer them uh, that opportunity. So people are still unable to do something about this grief. They will come when they're promised that it will be somewhat uh, safe, somewhat allowed. But they won't do anything as when even as little as, for example, providing a space for the last uh, goodbye uh, to Navalny. So eventually the church became uh, such a destination, uh, even at this, uh, even uh, under this condition. They're just too afraid. Yeah. And, and also the difference where I see with Tikhanovskaya is uh, Tikhanovskaya actually had the popular legitimacy, right? She won. Uh, and uh, Yulia certainly inherits Navalny's following, which is certainly is very notable. We have seen it today in Moscow's street. But unfortunate problem of the Russian position is this continue, continuous tra- struggle for legitimacy and clashes within each other. The one good development recently has been the fact that they will finally coalesce around the uh, unlikely figure of Boris Nadezhdin, who, uh, the anti-war candidate who tried to run. So finally, for once, I can't remember anything on previously on record when people actually, all of the opposition leaders actually said, yes, this is a good candidate, please support him. Um, the, the same problem they're facing consistently is that they keep struggling for who is the number one instead of uh, trying to get together for collective action. Even in this moment of crisis, the Tikhanovskaya haven't won de facto, right, the election in 2020, uh, Belarus kind of, over, how, it helped overcome the problem, even if still we see a lot of uh, still internal struggles remaining yes, in the Belarus position, <laughs> but it's even worse uh, in the case of um, of uh, the Russian opposition, as I've been told by one outside of the observer, certainly Belarus opposition has uh, its problems, but the Russian opposition is completely special in that it's regard. It's a league by itself, yeah. And no, and I... this, yeah, and even with the legitimacy that Tikhanovka has, it's it's difficult for her to have an impact inside the country, right? I mean, that's um, even if you have the legitimacy and even if you have somewhat reunited opposition behind you, um, how, how do you affect change, right? That that's, yeah. that's the same problem that that both face. Yeah, and it's interesting. We, I mean, and to some degree, the Sikhanovska model, I think, 
could be kind of an example for Navalnaya in that Sikhanovskaya has created a very effective operation, right, Op- out of Vilnius, right? It almost operates like a government in exile. Now, she has the legitimacy of that election. That has that has a lot to do with it. Um, and yes, there is still some division in the Belarusian opposition, but nevertheless, that she is pretty much the undisputed leader of the Belarusian opposition. She has kind of a government in exile abroad when she travels around Europe or to the United States. She's treated like a head of state. She got a White House meeting with President Biden when she was here in Washington. Uh, that took some doing, but the White House finally did the right thing there. But uh, in Navalnaya, replicate this. Maria, you pointed to the the worst divisions in the Russian opposition, which is a chronic condition of the Russian opposition. We also have the fact that Navalny has not won an election, right? Um, she has the mantle of her husband. She certainly is showing herself to be a, a very effective public figure because she's kind of been silent for most of his career. Do, do you do you see the Sikhanovskaya model as being a, as something she could follow? I guess we will see. Uh, Yule is absolutely courageous woman. Uh, there are people who know her. Um, unfortunately, I don't know her personally, uh, but people who know her say that if anything, she was even more strong-willed and even somewhat radical uh, than Navalny was in in her like commitment to liberalism. So, but the last three years that Navalny has been in jail uh, have not provided any record. Uh, right. I have to say, it's Dasha Navalny who has been more active for presenting at the campuses, for example, the United States, and then, of course, uh, Maria Pivchuk and Leonid Volkov. And honestly, the nagging suspicion is that uh, this will stay the same way with Yulia just becoming the public face of this structure rather than uh, really a radical, radical change in this. But I guess time will tell. Uh, we will see. Um, it's, in, in any case, I want to uh, congratulate like, thank her for having um, really seized this opportunity in the moment, which obviously was extremely difficult. So standing up like that and saying, yeah. you still be the, the face of this organization was extremely in a remarkable step. So I guess time will tell. And probably yeah. also depends on whether international leaders will continue to tweet her in the way they have tweeted treated her immediately after Alexei Navalny's death. So if they just sort of met her now to express their condolences or if they will be willing to stay in touch with her in the future, to meet her in the future and sort of to to thereby give some legitimacy and some standing to 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 Yulia Navalny. Yeah. What about the rest of the opposition abroad? I mean, we got, you know, Hodorkovsky, his money's doing great things and he's he's trying to do the right thing. Vladimir, our good friend Vladimir Malov uh, in Vilnius is, you know, he's got a, a YouTube channel, which is, 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 is you know, it's pretty good. Um, uh, better than pretty good. Sorry, Volodya. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, but what about the rest of the opposition? Or, uh, the Russian opposition is in a weird place right now. There is nothing left in Russia because everybody's in prison. And you got a few high-profile people abroad, and then you got organizations like the, like our friends of the Free Russia Foundation who are doing great work. But what do you, do you, Maria? You sound really skeptical that this could ever coalesce into a force for change. Am, am I reading you correctly? Well, it's been two years since this horrible war, and the consistent problem that haunted these liberal groups—not just the uh, politicians, but also journalists. 
who, by the way, I have to say, are merging uh, to each other, right? Politicians are becoming journalists because mostly what they do is that they run their YouTube channels for their constituencies right. and journalists are becoming politicians because their goal is also to kind of motivate and inspire the followers right. in Russia. So in a lot of ways, this is two professions that are merging uh, together among these Russian liberals in exile. Uh, the problem is that the consistent issue that they've been facing over the last two years of this horrible war is the inability to find um, a clear narrative, right? Especially for those of uh, liberal opposition who still have a have hope of running certain uh, political political career in Russia, they can't really tell to or Russians uh, that's all the truth about this war, right? That the people who are participating in it are criminals, uh, murderers, honestly, and that they're committing something unforgivable, and um, uh, they should stop. Instead, they t they choose uh, the way the framing that helps them flag how bad the war is for the Russians. But therefore, they consistently kind of shied away, stayed away with the issues associated to direct support for Ukraine, because essentially they can be calling for uh, what will be killing of their own possible voters. Mm -hmm. And I think that problem will, uh, that's what essentially led to this uh, whole scandal um, uh, between Dost and yes. uh, the authorities in Latvia some time ago. Uh, so this will be consistently the problem uh, for those of them who um, still hope, have a hope of continuing their career in Russia. I would actually, in th this point, perhaps um, if, recommend them actually clear a little bit the goals, right? Do they really envision anytime soon uh, the change uh, that will help them uh, become politicians in Russia? Or perhaps it's time to really uh, double down on what really matters. Uh, what really matters today from where I come from is the fact that Russian liberal opposition failed inside of the country and the struggle, some people called it the civil war, right now it just looks like a massacre between the Russian right. liberals and the Kremlin. Inside of the country now is actually happening. This fight between the freedom and the authoritarian uh, state is now happening on the front line in Ukraine. And so what we should right. be doing from where I come from is supporting Ukraine. But that is not something many of these groups are still uh, able of um, accepting. And that has re re resulted in consistent clashes over these two years between these two groups. The most recent example is the Forum of Free um, Russia in uh, Vilnius, where yet again uh, there was this huge debate between those people who say we should just unite and support Ukraine and others who say that's not something we can openly communicate uh, to our followers at this point. Yeah, I know the old saying, Russian liberalism stops at the Ukrainian border. And I think we're beginning to see this fray because you do see the opposition express support for Ukraine's territorial integrity and independence. But I think, Maria, you make a good point there that it needs to go one step farther. The best thing that could happen to the Russian opposition and to, to liberalism and democracy in Russia is Russia losing this war and losing it decisively and humiliatingly. Um, and, and unquestioningly, it, it just has to be a, a complete and total defeat. And that might spark liberalism. But I couldn't agree more with that. I could not agree more. Unfortunately, we're nowhere near that uh, in the West yeah. as well. It's not just liberal Russian opposition problem, but certainly... <laughs> it's the uh, United States House of Representatives. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but uh, that's not uh, the narrative of the Russian position today. Instead, uh, the narrative is this peace talk. Let's just right. add, stop this war right now and peace because it's not good for anybody. So, and just have peace talks. And that is just, unfortunately, again, uh, trying to, you know, shy away from the real problem. 
before we shift into the second half to talk about y'all's report, I did want to dive into one thing, Maria, because I know you've done a lot of work on this, and this is the younger generation in Russia. I mean, Navalny had so much influence over the younger generation in Russia, Russians in their 20s and 30s. Um, he taught Russians not to be afraid, he taught young Russians not to be afraid. This really struck me back in July 2013 when when Navalny was arrested, was put in prison the first time, and it lasted for all of a night because Russian, they were young. I was at the clips of, the, you know, of this. They were young. Remember, they were scaling the walls of the State Duma building. It was remarkable because that was a period where the crackdown was in full effect. The post-Bolotnaya crackdown was in effect, and these kids weren't afraid to take to the streets, and it, it did spook the elite. Because Navalny was released the next day. So I guess my question is two parts. One part of it is Navalny taught people not to be afraid. Now the regime is not afraid and they're trying to instill fear back into it. How is this going to play with this this young generation? You've been studying public opinion of this generation for, for, for years now. How do you see this playing out? Are we going to are they just going to revert to form and be be more like their parents? Or are they going to remain being the people Navalny helped talk, teach them to be? That's a great and also very difficult question. Uh, thank you, Brian. So we have some polls uh, about uh, today. Levada's poll and earlier um, Open uh, Minds Institute published that while uh, the majority of Russians have heard uh, about Navalny's death, uh, the, um, uh, the his approval uh, rating or those who had positive attitudes towards him uh, is between 11 and 19 percent of the population. The numbers are a little bit higher among the younger generations, but honestly, they're not, basically, it's the information that I got. It's not like radical shift, especially uh, among those who have heard about the death. And uh, I think for this, the answer is twofold. First of all, there are these people in the streets of Moscow today. You see certainly a domination of younger faces, many uh, men are hiding, they're trying to hide from the cameras, but nonetheless, uh, they're there, and that, that certainly is extremely admirable. Those people are probably have lost the future, but Navalny's and his example certainly will remain like this, as we have discussed, a symbol of martyrdom, but also an inspiration, I think, going forward, much in the same way that Vladimir Vysotsky and his death in early 80s, which right. to, to which many people are drawing parallels today, became such an inspiration uh, for uh, his own uh, generation. Uh, but then there is the majority. And Navalny's fight was not only not to be afraid. Navalny also, also always called for people not to be indifferent. And this is, I'm afraid, where he failed. Because we see consistently in the polls that absolute majority of uh, Russians do not have any attitudes to Navalny's death at all. Most have heard about it, but also over 50, like over 80 percent have heard about it. But over 50 percent say that they don't really have any attitude to that whatsoever. Going forward, I'm afraid this group and this is the group of that has made all the horrible things in Russia possible in the first place. Right. And unfortunately, uh, in the last years, we see that the regime understood the younger generation as really being the main problem. Uh, this is what our report about ideology is devoted towards, because since the start of the war, we have seen a really radical intensification of the effort into brainwashing, particularly the younger groups, through the introduction of multiple uh, special um, classes uh, at the, in the yeah. high school, at the high school level, at the right, university. The patriotic level. education, yeah. And um, together with uh, exiling uh, their position, uh, huge exodus of more active, more uh, passionate people outside from the country, and uh, uh, steady uh, taking internet under control, 
a lot of people are now talking about the possibility of the sovereign internet of Chinese style. There are recent evidence in that regard that the authorities are already trying to uh, create uh, such a system. Uh, this unfortunately means that many younger people will be cut off of the independent information and likely brainwashed. Also, um, just going to refer to Levada Center study that in the early 1990s started uh, tracking the changes, values changes in the Russian society uh, in expectation that uh, the so-called Soviet uh, man, right, this attitude, paternalistic practices that were associated in the Soviet Union will go away over time. What they discovered, to their own surprise, they, even uh, they themselves did not expect that, is that instead of disappearing, uh, many of these practices kept being reproduced through the generations because of the family, because of the institutions, right. many of which have remained unreformed. School plays a huge role in that dynamic. Unfortunately, today the regime doubles down on those practices, and that means that to an extent they will keep reproducing, despite the fact that there's certainly a lot of courageous, brave uh, people inspired by Navalny's example still are remaining in Russia, as we have seen today in the Moscow streets. Not a pretty picture. Leanna, any, any, uh, any thoughts on this before we shift into the second part? No, I mean, just to add one thought, I mean, what can what can Europeans uh, sort of what can the West do about now after sort of Alexei Navalny's funeral? And I think the only the only action that remains um, and we've seen a few sanctions policies, but which are not sort of wide ranging in response to them. I mean, the only action that remains is to try to exert pressure that the remaining um, opposition leaders who are now in prison, Vladimir Karamur, Zahile Yashin, to try to accept pressure that what happened to Navalny is not not repeated with them. Because that that would is something that one has to fear, that the Kremlin will not stop with Navalny, but over time um, can, can also uh, target others in prison. Uh, there were some rumors that uh, there was talk about Navalny being exchanged yes. um, from Germany's side and um, perhaps to test whether Germany is in general willing to exchange um, the so-called tear garden murderer. I don't know if any other talks uh, are going on for other opposition leaders, but certainly the fate of those opposition leaders um, who are still in prison should be so high on the priority yeah. and should be mentioned again and again and again to communicate to the Kremlin that those are not forgotten and that those are on the agenda and um, the West has its eyes on, on how they are yeah, how they're treated in prison and on their lives. Yeah, and not just these opposition leaders, but these Western journalists. Absolutely. Also, Kermasheva, my former colleague at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and my friend, yeah. um, Evan Gerskevich of the Wall Street Journal, of course, and then the other foreign citizens like Paul Whelan, who have been incarcerated. So that um, so, so that's a, this is a good place to shift gears. In a few moments, we will shift the focus slightly and look at that new report that Maria and Liana co-authored about scenarios for leadership change in Russia and its likelihood and what it could mean. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor Professor of Practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic downtown Washington, D.C. is my old friend Maria Snagavaya, a senior fellow in the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Maria is also a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service and co-author of the newly published must-read report from the Council on Foreign Relations titled Leadership Change in Russia, a Contingency Planning Memorandum. 
Random. And also joining us from our nation's capital is Liana Fix, a fellow for Europe at the Council on Foreign Relations. And Liana is the other co-author of this must-read report, Leadership Change in Russia, Extensity Planning Memorandum. She's also author of the book, A New German Power, Germany's Role in European Russia Policy. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the platform formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. And you can now subscribe to the new Power Vertical newsletter at brianwhitmore.substack.com. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники So Maria and Liana, in your new excellent report for the Council on Foreign Relations, you argued that a leadership change in Russia at some point is more likely than many of us suspect. Um, that Putin's grip on power is not as ironclad or may not be as ironclad as many believe. Um, this is a bit counterintuitive. Um, because the feeling now, and I've cried wolf on this far too many times to predict Putin's in, imminent demise, but but to get us rolling, why do you believe this? Why should we be looking beyond Putin at this point when Putin appears to be stronger than ever? Leanna, why don't we start with you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is certainly the case that the regime has stabilized after the death of Prigozhin, after the mutiny of Prigozhin, right? And so there's at the moment a perception that it is um, relatively stable. So we don't argue that we will see a leadership change immediately, that there's something brewing or cooking just right now. I mean, it could be, there always can be behind the scenes in the Kremlin. But we also say that it's not fully implausible that in the future, a leadership change can and will um, happen as in the same way as perhaps during the mutiny of Prigozhin, some have, have overestimated how fragile the regime is. We may now overestimate how stable it is. So there is a necessity to prepare for these scenarios. And we argue that if it takes place, there should be advanced preparation from the West for three scenarios that we develop. And we argue that a leadership change in Russia will most likely be a top-down elite process. So we say that it's unlikely that this is going to come from the streets. We also say that it is unlikely that there will be a westernization or liberalization scenario. I mean, just just adds to what we have discussed before, that there's just not the structure in place in Russia to have another Gorbachev emerge. And we argue that um, Russian elites to get together and to conspire for a leadership change in Russia must have the feeling and the impression that their personal lives, I mean, both physically but also politically, is at threat and that the Kremlin is a greater threat to their own futures than it is advantages for their futures. And that's difficult enough because of all the different factions of the security forces that might have to switch sides, that are loyal, some are loyal to the Kremlin, some are loyal to other groups. So the scenarios, um, how it will, how it can come about, will certainly be most difficult within the Russian elite structures. But we do say that there are three scenarios that are likelier to emerge than a liberalization scenario. And perhaps Maria wants to introduce those. 
Yeah, let's let's dive into those scenarios, Maria, because it's, it's interesting. The Atlantic Council just published its own report on five scenarios for Russia's future. I was struck by how much overlap there was in our scenarios. I guess great minds must think alike. But uh, you had three, we had five, but they all fell within to the same general parameters. Um, you lay out three possible scenarios, a what you call a radicalization scenario. That would yield a Yuri Andropov-like successor. I, I kind of see this as the Putinism without Putin kind of scenario in a lot of ways. Um, you have what you call a retrenchment scenario, which isn't a Gorbachev scenario. It's a Khrushchev. It's a Nikita Khrushchev-like scenario, basically keeping Putinism intact, but a softer, kind of kinder and gentler Putinism light, if you will, is the kind of way I, I, I interpreted that. And then finally, interestingly enough, you had the same fragmentation scenario that the author of the Atlanta Council piece, Casey Michelle, had, a fragmentation scenario that leads to devolution and erosion of federal power um, in Russia. I guess this would be the time of trouble scenario, if you will, um, in a lot of ways. Can you kind of talk a little bit about each of these and what uh, what, what kind of contingencies you see leading to them? Yeah, absolutely. And I will also add that uh, historical analysis shows that regimes of Putin type are really go be replace uh, leaders of Putin's type, they die in power most of the time. So yeah. we, uh, but it's still a leadership change, even if we have to wait for that 10, 15 years. Why do we publish uh, this now? That is because the uh, expectations of the future are highly important for development of the U.S. Uh, foreign policy uh, towards Russia. And understanding that the liberal, the beautiful liberal Russia of the future, right, uh, that Navalny, Navalny promised to connect this topic to the early, to the first part of our conversation uh, is nowhere near on the horizon, I think is very important uh, for the U.S. Uh, policies going forward. And so, just as you uh, described it, Brian, essentially, the expectation that it can be stay the same way as it is, um, the situation may get a little bit more so the same way. Although I have to say, from where I come from, I think we should, in general, be uh, supportive of a possibility of change because Putin probably is as bad as Russia can. It's hard to imagine things get much yeah. worse than Putin is. And I think the worst of policymakers should stop being afraid of a possibility of um, yeah. a change, uh, because honestly, uh, we have a particularly un unset, uncontrolled leader, unhinged um, uh, with a nuclear bomb. Maybe let's try something else, just uh, out of curiosity. But Siloviki um, uh, and the current control um, of the Security Council suggests that a possibility of continuing the same escalatory path uh, is certainly a likely possibility. Um, in that case, essentially, the devil's control, that is the radicalization uh, scenario, mm -hmm. as we describe it, and the contestation, the uh, position to the West will continue with the world perhaps uh, going the same into this, uh, with Russia attempting to develop, to build up this anti-Western bloc, as we have seen uh, right now. I think where uh, it's more likely, uh, given the fatigue of the elites, the society and um, the fact that Russia also is not in a good, does not really see any path forward, even domestically, right? Everybody understands that things are weird. That the retrenchment scenario and its odds are somewhat higher. Uh, historically, looking also after the, every round of escalation with the West, the next leadership kind of tries to, quote unquote, reset the relationship somewhat. So the possibility of this Khrushchev like um, 
scenario where the system, um, as Leanna pointed out, kind of stays the same, but with tiny, um, with, 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 with a degree of de-escalation, it's very likely. However, the retrenchment scenario is also the most sort of seductive uh, for the West. Yeah. Uh, there is a possibility to imagine that Russia, you know, is going to, is on track to become quote unquote normal again, as many people have assumed in the 1990s and early 2000s, and therefore let it off the hook you know, lift yeah. sanctions without any concessions. So we actually flag this uh, this particular scenario as being the most yeah. potentially dangerous in that I sense. agree with you about that too. And then the last one, um, the fragmentation scenario. Again, the odds of that are not as high uh, looking from 2024, now that uh, the West really is not, decreased the support for Ukraine and Russia is not failing this war. But the possibility uh, that uh, Russia, for example, as a result of certain huge economic crisis, kind of has to, uh, the domestic contingents within Russia and questions about the chosen path become so dramatic that uh, essentially we see uh, Russia closing off and looking a little bit like uh, becoming more, uh, the, the more tensions inside of the country and the actors are becoming more focused on the situation domestically. This is, by the way, again, maybe not the worst possible scenario, given that Russia historically, when uh, there is a lot of disarray um, and instability at home, tends to be less aggressive. It's actually the opposite of the um, you know, the diversion of war theory. It's not that Russia starts the wars when it's weak and wants to distract um, the public. It's other, the other way around. When this Russia is strong and it has a lot of oil revenues, when it's more likely to be internationally aggressive. So and that the is data not supports the that, yeah. So we, again, uh, maybe for a call for the policymakers not to be horrified by that scenario because internationally it may actually lead to potentially more positive outcomes for those countries that are lucky enough to be Russia's neighbors. Yeah, your three scenarios kind of in their likelihood are in the inverse of what I think are the best outcomes in a lot of ways, right? I mean, I think you're right, Maria. I think this retrenchment scenario after Putin is the most likely, the most seductive for the West and the most dangerous. I think the radicalization scenario would probably be the next most likely, right? Uh, a kind of intensification and doubling down um, on Putinism. Yeah, and I think this fragmentation scenario is unlikely um, and it presents its own security challenges for the West, quite frankly. We're bumping up toward the toward the latter part of our program, and, but I wanted, uh, you, you do offer, I mean, the point of these reports when the think tank produces these reports is to influence the policy discussion uh, here in Washington. That's what we do. So I wanted to kind of dive next into you. You have a series of policy wrecks um, that seem to hold for all of these scenarios, for the West to prepare for this contingency so we won't get caught flat-footed again. Leanna, what are, what are some of those wrecks? Yeah, perhaps two or three of the most important. I mean, there are a couple that we offer. I think the first that we um, suggest is that the United States should engage in a broad coordination process with its allies to prevent exactly what Maria has outlined, that especially in a retrenchment Khrushchev scenario, we see, and Maria and I were joking when we were writing this paper, was that it would seem Macron jumping on the first plane to Moscow to reach <laughs> out to a new president. And I mean, perhaps it's not Macron after his recent remarks. He has yeah. Come Macron's uh, feet will be on the ground. Exactly. Yeah, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> Good. Get nice, nice. Oh, yeah. So he suddenly has become more hawkish than one would expect him to be. But sort of this was our major concern that we would see within the alliance those who say 
whoever emerges in a retrenchment scenario, we cannot trust anyone. There's no sense in doing any talks. And on the other hand, we would see, for example, France and Germany that would sort of play the same game as everyone played with the Medvedev Putin transition, right? I mean, placing a lot of hopes on Medvedev, um, even if, if if that from the beginning was um, uh, already seemed not as successful as, as it was hoped for. The other, so that's a, a broad thing. So it should, the United States should not only stick to its own contingency planning, but it should really make it an mm -hmm. allied effort to do this kind of contingency planning, because we've seen with the beginning of the Ukraine war, how powerful it is if the alliance and the United States act together. And if something happens in Russia, it can happen pretty fast. And it will be very fluid at the beginning. So it will be unclear and very difficult to identify what scenario are we in, how are we responding to that. And so it's so much more important that there is a coordinated um, response. And the second um, we come in, sorry, sorry, Brian. And I'm saying we should almost war game this in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'm just kind absolutely. of thinking out loud, but it, like, it would be a good idea to war game this uh, and, or diplomacy gaming. I don't know what you want to call it, but like. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it would be something for policy planners from the alliance yeah. to get together for a two day workshop and to try to figure out how would we respond to certain different scenarios that might come up. And the other recommendation that we, uh, the second recommendation that we have, and which is important to us, I believe, is um, that the United States historically has always stayed out in leadership change scenarios in Russia. And our argument is that, I mean, of course, you can stay out, but then you also have no leverage whatsoever to at least try and incentivize a preferred scenario. If you want retrenchment more than you want radicalization, then perhaps there's something one can do instead of staying out completely of Russian internal affairs. And our suggestion is a messaging from the United States and the West, how a better Russia and how better Russian-Western relations can look like, what could be steps to improve those relations to sort of develop a positive vision of a future relationship, which will not appeal to many people. We are quite aware of that. It will only appeal to a certain part of perhaps the population and the elite, but at least there's something out there to incentivize one scenario. And the third and important point that we wanted to make is that leverage, again, for the West lies in Ukraine and not necessarily in Russia, even if there are attempts to incentivize one scenario over the other with a positive messaging um, obviously not with regime change, but with a positive messaging, the most important leverage that the West has is in Ukraine. That's a yeah. thought that Sam Green also developed for, for foreign affairs in which we fully share what the West can do is to continue to support Ukraine when it comes to Russian domestic politics. Right. So our best Russia policy is a good Ukraine policy, something a lot of us have been saying for a long time. I would also add that listen to Russia's neighbors. We tended to dismiss them in Western capitals. We dismissed the Estonians and the Lithuanians and the Latvians and the Poles as being you know, hopelessly anti-Russian and cynical, and they turned out to all be right, and we all owe them a huge apology because they were right. Um, bumping up against the end of the show, Maria, giving the last word to you. Anything to add? I will say that, as you can see, one uh, difference between, I think, of our report from other related uh, report in Russia's futures, Ljubljana, um, that uh, we try to stay more realistic, uh, right? We don't want to give false hopes uh, in the reality, which is uh, significantly gloomy. In light of uh, this current dynamic and broader issues uh, that we now understand about Russia, right, that the problems lie beyond just Putin, certainly he has the huge uh, responsibility for the war, but there's also beyond uh, the problems associated to the society more broadly, to the institutions that are not reformed, mm -hmm. to the elites, 
that are co-opted and in generally, at least partly ideologically, agree uh, coalesce with Putin, uh, that Russia over the long term is unlikely uh, to be on this normalization uh, path. Uh, as many have assumed in early 1990s and 2000s. So the, uh, the US policy and the Western policy towards Russia should be fundamentally rethought in this light, understanding Russia in the near future and probably in the long term, at least in the foreseeable future, as a, a challenge and and a political enemy of the United States. It's very unlikely that this will change. Therefore, and um, uh, this will be forthcoming in a couple of weeks, we have an article uh, with a couple of colleagues, Mike Kimmich, uh, Mark Bergman, and uh, Jeff Markov, talking about the implications of this reality, that we are probably looking at this long-term strategy of containment. Essentially, we are back to the reality of the Cold War uh, for uh, the foreseeable future. When the trade-off emerges in one, like, you know, uh, maybe not uh, prosecuting, um, not sanctioning Russia in hope that there will be a liberal opposition taking our control soon. I think we, or uh, perhaps trying to contain Russia, I think uh, the emphasis should be on containment uh, just for this reality. And Bian actually has a, also a great piece about that uh, together with Mike Kimmich in Foreign Affairs. Okay, well, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for that and uh, certainly promote it when 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 the time comes. We're going to kind of double down on Reagan's trust but verify, say don't trust and double verify, I would say. But no, I think the consensus is we're moving into this protracted period of containment. This has kind of whetted my appetite. I'd like to get the two of you and um, and Casey Michelle, the author of our Great Atlanta Council piece on the uh, on on Russian futures, because I thought there was considerable overlap. I, I It really struck me how much overlap there was. Um, our scenarios maybe went in directions you didn't. This, we had one liberalization scenario, but other than that, we were pretty we were pretty much on the same. And we think that one's highly unlikely as well. So we'll, we'll try to look at doing that in the future. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today because I have to run to an appointment, which is the unusual. Usually it's one of my guests. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic downtown Washington, D.C. has been my old friend, Maria Snegovac a senior fellow in the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Maria is also a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service, and she is the co-author of the newly published and must-read report that we will link to in the show notes from the Council of Foreign Relations titled Leadership Change in Russia, a Contingency Planning Memorandum. Maria also co-authored another recently published uh, and must-read report from CSIS titled The Ideology of Putinism is It Sustainable. Also joining us from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., has been Liana Fitz, a fellow for Europe at the Council on Foreign Relations. Liana is also the author of A New German Power, Germany's Role in European-Russia Policy. And for our purposes today, she was, of course, the other co-author of that newly published must-read report from CFR, Leadership Change in Russia, a Contingency Planning Memorandum. Thank you both for making us all a whole lot smarter. Thank you, Brian. Thanks so much. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Jarea Roman is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all those lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Jarea also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up all of my many, many messes, and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. 
I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you do, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review because that really does help our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the platform formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical, and now you can follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical, and you can subscribe to the new Power Vertical newsletter at ryanwhitmore.substack.com. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 